0: perspectives lecture. It's a special series of presentations by future leaders in ocean science. And of course, all the future leaders in ocean science are students at SIO. Um, So that's a slight exaggeration. But we're really excited to do this special presentation. We have some wonderful, very bright and uh, exciting students At SIO, And so three or four of them are going to give short presentations about their work. And there will also be posters of other students' work around the room so that you'll be able to get a a really quite a big idea of what the students are doing, what kind of areas of research they're up to. And that really brings me on to this evening's speaker, who is Dr. Bridget Smith, who until recently was actually a graduate student here at SIO. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Bridget and just want to tell you a little bit about her which will give you some idea and some flavor of really how exceptional she is and she's clearly um, already a distinguished scientist and on her way to become really um, a shining light here at SIO. Uh, She got her BA uh, in uh, Physics and Astronomy um, at Northern Arizona University in, in 1999 and then she got her Ph.D. in earth science here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in 2005. And her dissertation title is Three-Dimensional Deformation and Stress Models Exploring 1,000 Years of Earthquake History Along the San Andreas Fault. And so most of you will realize that's what she's going to talk about tonight. Um, so now she's a postdoc here, a postdoctoral researcher here at SIO. And before that, she was a graduate researcher from 1999 till 2005. But she has other experience, too. She was a research assistant at NASA in 1999 and a research assistant at Stanford Linear Accelerator Center in 1998. And again, a research assistant at NASA Space Grant Lowell Observatory in 1997 to 1999. She has a lot of teaching experience, and as you'll see tonight, she is really wonderful at communicating to the public, which I think is such an important thing for our scientists to do today. But before I let her start talking to you tonight, I want to tell you a little bit about her awards and fellowships, which will really tell you how exceptional she is. She won the Outstanding Undergraduate um, Teaching Award at SIO last year, She won the Outstanding Student Paper Award at the AGU Fall Meeting in 2004. She uh, got first place in the SIO Visualization Contest in 2004. She won the Edward A. Freeman Director's Prize for Graduate Student Research in 2003 here at SIO. She was the outstanding graduating senior in the arts and sciences at uh, North Arizona University in 1999. And she made the dean's dean's list, it seems, almost every year. So I hope I've embarrassed her enough. And now it's uh, my great pleasure to welcome Bridget to talk to you tonight.
1: Well, thank you, Nigella, for... The wonderful introduction and thank you all for coming and hopefully um, my goal is to teach you a little bit about the science that I did for my uh, PhD thesis and perhaps give you an idea of what researchers are doing um, to take the next step ahead in the future um, to start off though I really wanted to uh, sort of hook you into being interested in the science we do of course we all live in Southern California so there is just a general natural interest in earthquake science and how earthquakes will affect all of us. And so the title of this talk, Exploring a Thousand Years of Earthquake History, that's really something that takes quite a bit of data and quite a bit of effort from many scientists. So I'll just point out now, this is not just my work, but a collection of a lot of people's works and efforts that have gone into this research. So what I'm going to be talking about today is really the observations that we have, first of all, for studying earthquake science. And those are primarily geology and seismology, at least for the models that I'm going to show you. Um, this right here is a picture from the 1906 earthquake up in San Francisco. Um, so 1906, obviously. People dressed a little bit differently than they do today. But you can, so what's really amazing to me in this picture is just the outstanding magnitude of ground displacement that this rupture happened, that this rupture actually induced. And so this kind of pictures I'll be pulling up now and then just to remind you of the magnitude of these events. Now, second of all, we also want to describe different components of our work. And that, and our work, really requires the use of studying fault zone behavior. And what we mean by that is how this area, right next to the fault plane, obviously, if you have some Earth moving this way and you have Earth moving in the opposite direction, it's separated by a fault. And so we would like to study what the ground is doing there, what the soils are doing there, and what the forces are in that region. Um, And then I'm going to also bring you into a little bit of a discussion about the earthquake cycle and what that means. And I'll save that for just a little bit. Um, And then finally, we put all this together, and I produce models of tectonic deformation and stress accumulation. And these are just some kind of fancy visualizations here um, that you may have seen in the movie or caught, and that we try to make them very colorful and very depictive. And this, believe it or not, is a um, model of the 1906 event. This is the San Andreas running up and down here. And this bright bunch of colors represents the deformation that occurred from this very large magnitude earthquake. So, to begin our journey, um, I'll start with just very basics of plate tectonics. Um, We have many layers of the earth. There's a core, there's a mantle, and there's the crust. Now, in the mantle, we have convective fluid motions. and At the top, we have these crustal, fairly somewhat hard plates that are floating at the top. Okay, and so I'm sure you all are familiar with this, but the primary plates that we want to discuss here today are the North American plate and the Pacific plate. And the reason we're interested in those is because they grind against each other right here at the intersection. We have the North American plate going in a northeasterly sense and the Pacific plate going in a northwesterly sense. And so this boundary here is the San Andreas Fault System and pretty much all of California. And so we're going to zoom in on a boxed region here. This is just a nice photograph I found. Um, If you can't read this sign, it says here, San Andreas Fault, now entering Pacific Plate. And so what this picture is showing us, this is actually in the Parkfield region. Um, This is the San Andreas running underneath this bridge, and we're actually looking west, I believe. So we would be on this side of the plate boundary, headed over to the Pacific plate on that side. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about this region, but there's all kinds of fun things that occur up in here. Okay, so to just sort of bring you back closer to home, this is a map of California, Um, This black solid line is what I'm going to call the San Andreas Fault System. Now, a lot of geologists and geophysicists will say, well, the San Andreas is only one fault and that there's branches of faults here, but for a general sense, we'll call this the entire San Andreas Fault System. We have the North American plate on this side, the Pacific plate on this side, San Diego's down here, Los Angeles, and poor San Francisco lying there right on straddling the fault. Um, now, there's about 48 millimeters per year of movement of the North American plate with respect to the Pacific plate. And this is far out at a distance. Okay, now, closer, right at the San Andreas, there's about 40 millimeters per year of that 48 that's taken up right here. Some of these other faults move and contribute to that extra 8 millimeters. Now, if you think about that, 48 millimeters per year, 40 millimeters per year, seems a little slow. But that's the speed at which your fingernails grow. And if you accumulate that thousands and thousands and thousands of years, you have a fault that once was something was at this point over millions of years has now moved all the way up to here. Okay, so it's pretty amazing. Now, there are other pieces to this story. There's areas like the Eastern California shear zone where there are many little faults out in here. Um, There's the Garlock Fault. The San Andreas actually does branch onto what's proper term is the San Jacinto Fault down here. Um, And it also branches into three sections up here. I'm going to call this one the San Andreas, this is the Hayward Fault, and this is the Calaveras section. Okay? Now I'm going to even more further jump into this. Um, Geologists like to separate things even more so that they can describe different areas or different regions of the system. And so all of these little faults here are color-coded by depth. And what that means is depth to which the fault will break brittlely during an earthquake, okay? And so on the order of zero to about 30 kilometers is how deep, so you see this region is pretty deep, goes pretty far down deep, and then the reds are areas that are very shallow or the fault is not locked at all. I'll go into that a little bit more. But um, primarily these are categorized in this sense just because perhaps these regions have all broken one earthquake or perhaps they have all the same geometry or the same geologic features. So I'll take a little tour. Um, Starting down here in the south is the Imperial Fault. Imperial region. Uh, Many of you may have driven along Interstate 8, heading towards Phoenix or Tucson, and you would have driven right over the Imperial Fault. Um, This is actually the El Centro region, where you see cracks um, near an irrigated field. And this is the uh, U.S.-Mexican border right here. And this um, fence, this very high-tech fence, you might say, um, exactly straddles the fault. The fault is right here. And this fence, if you can see it, it's sort of hard, but there's a jog right here where it's offset by the slow, creeping movement of the Imperial Fault. Next, we're stepping northwards to this area, the Coachella, San Bernardino Mountains area. Palm Springs is about right here, if you've ever been there. These two pictures I find really, really dramatic and pretty amazing, actually. This is actually, both are taken in the Mecca Hills area, which is just to the northeast of the Salton Sea. Um, The San Andreas runs right through here. But these rocks have just been squished and squished and squished together over millions of years as these two plate boundaries have been grinding past each other. And so you get very odd geologic features such as this. Moving further to the north is the Mojave region. These pictures are taken from a road cut along Highway 14. If you've ever been on a geology field trip, geologists probably would have taken you here. Um, This is not actually showing the exact San Andreas. This picture is taken just a little bit to the north of the San Andreas, but it shows you how the different rocks have been folded over over millions of years and just squished and flopped over over and again. Next is the Carrizo section. Um, This is actually the picture that we see in the background here. This is taken right about here in Carrizo. It's a very arid area. Um, Geology is very well preserved. And the San Andreas runs right through here and it also runs right here. Now, does anybody have any idea what this odd feature is? Offset stream, stream, that's right. Someone did their homework. So this stream here, and I'm not quite sure if it was offset in one earthquake, but perhaps over many earthquakes, it's been offset by over 20 meters. Okay, the last earthquake in this region here actually offset these, this land by about eight to ten meters. So this is probably multiple earthquakes. But the stream used to be here, and now it's be, it was forced northwards, and now it's here. Okay, this picture is actually turned upside down. This would be to the north. Okay, next is the Sholam region. Um, this is actually the San Andreas here, and again, this is a very arid region. But you get these areas of water here and these are called sag ponds um, this is due to the extension of the fault and the groundwater just seeping in and making these small little sag ponds and to the north this is seismologist's favorite area this is Parkfield um, and Parkfield is the self-proclaimed earthquake capital of the world um, meaning that earth, something very unusual happened in Parkfield over the last 100-150 years and that is that we noticed that there are earthquakes occurring there about every 20-30 to 30 years And so seismologists and geologists got really excited about that, and they got a lot of money from the government to put a lot of instruments out here and to see if there was a predictive way of actually finding out how these earthquakes occurred. And so there's a little town of Parkfield nestled right here. The fault is located right here and right here in this picture. But there's a Parkfield Cafe. It's called the Earthquake Cafe or something like that. I haven't been there, but I've seen many pictures. But they also are digging a a 3 to 4 kilometer deep hole or a trench down and down to the surface to actually study the seismic properties of this region. And, if you all remember, there was an earthquake here in 2004. It came a f- quite a few years too late in the predictive sequence, but this, this hit a lot of the head- news headlines. And further north, this is the creeping section. This is also a very unusual section because this area does not does not, nor do we think has ever had any major earthquakes. They're all very small little earthquakes that happen here. There's not a lot of, of disruption and it's no main surface breaks either. It just the earth actually creeps along at a very steady pace and it's pretty calm right in here. And then we add, we head further to the north, um, heading towards San Francisco. First of all, i mentioned mention this picture here. This is at the Nyland Ranch. Um, there's actually a winery nearby. Um, you can see an offset in the winery, and you can also see an offset on this fence here. So this half of the fence is heading to the north, and this half is heading to the south. And at this winery that's nearby, they also have, um, it's one of their cellar buildings that's being offset. And so that's a pretty interesting thing to look at. Um, and then this is the Bay Area. The San Andreas runs right through here. And so it actually goes just to the west of um, Stanford University. Um, and it, stra- it parallels excuse me, um, Highway 280, if you've ever been in the Bay Area and driven on that highway. Um, and then San Francisco downtown area is about right here. And so the San Andreas pretty much just jumps offshore just a few miles um, to the south of there. Heading further north, um, we're along this strand here. This is near Point Reyes the, in the Tomales Bay, and this is actually the fault that runs right here. It jumps on and offshore. Um, and then this also is a long, nice perspective of the fault. Um, you can just see how the ocean has been carving away, but also the fault has been separating the land here to let the ocean enter through step down to the southern Calaveras region. Um, Perhaps some of you have some children or grandchildren that like to wear clothing from the company of Hollister. Um, Well, this picture is from the little town of Hollister. And um, this is actually important to me because I don't find the clothing all that important. I find the city pretty important because they have a close-up view of this fault right here. Um, It just creeps along very steadily. There are no major earthquakes here. There have been some, a few about magnitude 5 earthquakes in this area, but nothing too concerned. But you can see how the ground is just being stretched in one direction, just along the sidewalks on the houses. It just moses on through the neighborhood communities. Nobody seems to really mind. And then last but not least I'm going to show you here is that of the Hayward Fault. This is um, a pretty important one for those that live in the Bay Area. Um, Not only do they have the San Andreas, but they also have the Hayward Fault. It runs um, uh, just east of the East Bay, runs through Oakland, heads up towards Berkeley. And this is a picture of it here. And, but what actually is sort of interesting, but not necessarily good for those that attend Berkeley is that the fault runs right through the stadium at UC Berkeley. And this gentleman here is having, looks like lunch while he's watching some sort of arena game, maybe a football game, but notice this right here. This is an engineering band-aid of sorts. Um, The stadium is being torn apart, and it has been over the past 100 years or however long UC Berkeley has been in existence. And um, they've noticed this, and so the only way to fix it though is to just sort of apply a nice little metallic sheet and patch it together and hope that the big one doesn't come to this area of the the fault. So they're watching out for the Hayward Fault, and there's many seismologists up here that are, are really studying this area quite intensely. Okay, so we've learned about some of how they actually the fault system behaves. This is a snapshot of how today the Earth behaved. Um, these are earthquakes that occurred. I took this at nine o'clock this morning, just off of the internet. Um, and this is showing the state of California and Nevada and all the faults. And then these boxes are squares, are um, a record of the earthquakes that occurred in the last hour, which would be red. Looks like none happened um, in the last day, which are blue, and the last week, which are yellow. And then the size of the boxes is proportional to the magnitude of the earthquake. So it looks like we're doing good today. Nothing too significant, um, just same activity as normal. Now, of course, I say this and watch there be a big earthquake tomorrow, but for now, as of 9 o'clock this morning, everything looked about right. Um, So this gives us an idea of what's happening today, but what happened in the past, okay? That's what I want to sort of give you a tour of right now. Um, I'm going to show you only back from 1800 to 2004. These are what we call historical earthquakes. These are earthquakes that were more, pretty much observed by either Spanish missionaries or by the public that's here today. So in 1838 and 1812, there were two observed earthquakes in this region, one along the Mojave region and then a fairly large one up in San Francisco. Okay? Now keep in mind that this area was being populated um, due to the gold rush, so there was a pretty good record of this earthquake. And then we step into the 1850 to 1900 region, and we're starting to fill in the blanks more. Now, of course, there were more people here to observe these earthquakes, so it doesn't mean necessarily there are more earthquakes occurring in this time period, it's just we have a better record, and you'll see this progress further. Um, quite a few in the Bay Area as well, but the main one in this time period was the 1857 earthquake. I'll show you a picture of it there. This earthquake ruptured the San Andreas Fault for 350 kilometers. This was the largest earthquake we have on record um, for Southern California. It was a magnitude 7.9, and it offset the earth here by over 12 meters, okay, in some places. Now, 12 meters. One meter is about this big, so... You would not want your house to be sitting on top of that fault at that time period. So, um, and, okay, so it's 2006 now, almost said 2005. And so we're looking at over 150 years, almost 160 years, that's transpired since this earthquake occurred, okay? Now, seismologists suspect that this earthquake breaks every 150 to 200 years. So we're looking out for this area, Okay. <laughs> Okay, so next we're stepping into 1900 to 1950 by the green. Shown here, there's quite a bit. You can see this Parkfield filled region is starting to gather more and more of the same little section here. Um, there's quite a few down here. The 1940 earthquake in Imperial was pretty destructive. But the main one in this time period was the 1906 earthquake. Okay, that was a magnitude 7.8. It ruptured 420 kilometers along this fault segment here. And unfortunately, as you can see from this destruction, you probably already know, there were quite a few deaths. And the deaths didn't necessarily occur from the shaking of the buildings and the toppling of the structures, but it followed, the deaths were actually caused by the fire that spread through the city because of downed power lines. Um, And actually the city of San Francisco has never quite confirmed the death total. Um, It's something that I think a lot of people are just sort of guessing at. Um, Obviously, lots of destruction. Um, This was a Uh, locomotive that was toppled over. This is an offset fence. This is the the picture you see in every geology textbook. So this part of the earth was forced forward by, looks like at least two meters or so. And again we have the one with the woman standing next to the fault rupture. Okay. And so the last section I'm going to point out is in 1950 to 2004. um, Again we have activity in Parkfield. There's some minor events here and there. But what I wanted to point out was, in 1979, there was a magnitude 7 earthquake in Imperial. Um, If you were living here at that time, you may have felt it. You may remember it. Um, Offset a lot of uh, irrigated fields, caused many cracks. I don't believe there were any fatalities from this earthquake, though, but there was significant damage. Um, After that, we had, in 1989, the Loma Prieta earthquake. Again, this was damaged in Oakland from um, one of the double-decker freeways, and just a nice slice of the earth. This was actually taken up in the Santa Cruz Mountains where the epicenter was. Okay, the last two I wanted to point out was in 1982. This was the Landers earthquake. Many of you may have remembered this. This was a 7.3. And then most recently... In 1999, the Hector Mine earthquake, um, this was a magnitude 7.1. And so the reason I point these two out is, okay, they're not attached to the San Andreas. We wouldn't necessarily call them part of the fault system proper. But these two are showing significant evidence for what we call stress triggering. And that's a very important thing because if something is triggered, that means it was triggered by something and perhaps we can find out why and make that a more of a predictive effort. And so what I want to point out next is how this area here, we might be able to find more evidence for this coulomb stress triggering. So this is a map of uh, Southern California. I hope that you can see it in the back. Um, So we have San Diego down here and Los Angeles down here. And these stars are representative of four earthquakes that occurred in the last 10 years. In 1992, uh, actually I'm going to try here, the Joshua Tree earthquake in April was a magnitude 6.1. Um, Three months, excuse me, two months later, there was a magnitude 7.3 Landers earthquake um, on June 28th at 4.58 a.m., okay? And then three hours later, at 8.04 a.m., was the Big Bear earthquake as a magnitude 6.2, and then approximately seven years later, there was a 7.1 earthquake out here at Hector Mine. Now, the Hector Mine is significantly separated in time from the Big Bear and the Landers earthquake, but Considering there wasn't much activity out here over the past 100 years, and then all of a sudden this area is just lighting up like a Christmas tree, gives us some idea that perhaps these events are related. Now this has been further studied, and these colors are representative of the stress field. These are models of what happened before and after the Landers earthquake. So this what shows after the Landers earthquake, which is a magnitude 7.3, it ruptured this area here. The red indicates areas that might be have high stress, or that might be more likely to rupture with aftershocks. And the blue shows a decrease in probability of having aftershocks. And so what we see is that the Big Bear earthquake occurred three hours later, and it occurred in this area of red, this area of increased or likelihood of aftershocks. This was in 1982. Now we step forward seven years later, just before the Hector Mine earthquake, and you see that what had occurred in the, from the Landers earthquake actually put this area here, in a orangish-red area, and this is where the magnitude 7.1 earthquake occurred. So there is a link here, there is a relationship that somehow the Landers earthquake changed the stress field in the crust that perhaps triggered the Hector Mine earthquake, as did the Big Bear, okay? So I use um, a similar type of analysis um, on the San Andreas Fault System to show how the stresses build up and decrease. Okay, so I would like to just briefly talk about measurable tectonics. Obviously, we can see that the crust is just being warped and stretched here. San Andreas runs right through here. So part of these measurable tectonics are the geology. This stuff here actually records historical earthquakes. Um, you can find out the slip rate, and what that is is the rate at which the ground moves. And seismologists and geologists can give us these numbers by looking at different features and digging down into the earth, digging down into the trenches, and actually dating things. And they can also tell us about recurrence intervals. And what a recurrence interval is, is, is how, le- how quickly an earthquake will repeat itself. Okay? And so we have good evidence for geology that can go into any type of model that we want to make. But we also have evidence for geodesy. And geodesy is a study of tiny motions on the crust. Okay? And we use satellites and we use GPS stations such as this to give us velocities or displacements over time that show us how this crust is moving horizontally and vertically. So you put these together and you have evidence of what happened in the past and you have evidence of what's happening in the present. And you put these together and you have a model. Now this leads us to say, well, what about what will happen in the future? And that's sort of what we're trying to get at is, can we calculate how the stress fields are from both the past and the present to figure out how perhaps the future of the San Andreas and of California will behave? So I'm going to just briefly step you into some theory, because when we have a model, we always have to have theory. And I'm hopefully going to be able to illustrate it by these two figures here. So what this is showing you is a cross-section of the Earth. This would be our fault that's locked to some distance. And below it is this sort of steady-stay area, this elastic or creeping area. And when I say elastic, think of a rubber band. You stretch it, you stretch it, you stretch it, and eventually it snaps, and it returns to place. Okay? And that's what I'm going to be defining as elastic. Now down here, we're seeing this area, the shallow region would be the locked fault. And so the first thing we have is these distant, deep forces that are driving this system, okay? So you have these distance and d- deep forces that are actually moving the Earth, and this keeps accumulating over time. It builds, and you have the surface deforming. So this is showing us an, a fence that's actually being deforming, okay? It hasn't broken yet. It's just slowly being pulled at, just like that, a few of those pictures that we saw. Now, of course, when the stress builds, it has to give up that energy somehow, and so eventually you have sudden fault slip or an earthquake, and the stress is released. And that's what's showing here: the, fault, the fence, excuse me, would be breaking. and the two blocks would move side to side. Okay? And this is all because there's big stress and forces being built up on the edges of this fault. So we have this model here, which I call the elastic model. You stretch, you stretch stretches and eventually slips. And then there's a little bit more complicated of a model called a viscoelastic model. And this one has two layers, a strong layer called the lithosphere, and a weak layer, could almost be sort of like a fluid, is the asthenosphere. And so this area down here sort of behaves independently up here. It it does have an effect, but it doesn't care what's going on here necessarily. But it, it deeply affects what's going on up here. And these two systems combined can give us what we call the earthquake cycle. Um, the inner seismic period, which is just the steady motion of this stuff down here, just sort of accumulating stress at this bottom here. The co-seismic period is when this lock fault lurches forward. And the post-seismic period is when this area here readjusts itself up in here and actually has an effect of what we see at the surface. Now let me describe that a little bit better. So first of all, we have interseismic deformation. Okay, so we have steady slip. And this area is just steadily moving, and this fault area is locked. Now what we have is actually a steady constant rate of 40 millimeters per year, for example, let's say. And you get ground features like this, and you just have nothing breaks significantly. You don't have any destructive forces. But you're applying a lot of forces at the ends here that's eventually going to form into an earthquake. Now, next phase is the co phase, the coseismic deformation, where you have instantaneous slip. This locked r- region lurches forward to catch up with this region down here, and it releases all of that accumulating stress. Okay, and the last phase is this post-seismic phase. Now, this is the one that gets a little bit more complicated, but it really shows us the most unique features and lets us figure out what's going on inside the Earth. And so this is deformation that occurs slowly over time, and what actually happens is it causes areas of the Earth to go up or have uplift and to subside or have subsidence. And so this is just an example of what some co-workers have done. Um, They've collected data of this region. This is data called INSAR data, Interferometric Synthetic Aperture Radar, What this is just representing, though, is this is from the Lander's earthquake, and it's showing you that this was the fault that ruptured, and the two quadrants to the northeast and the southwest went up after the earthquake a few months afterwards, and the quadrants to the northwest and the southeast went down. And this is all from post-seismic, perhaps viscoelastic response. And this is new science. This is just, we've just started looking into this maybe in the past 10 years or so. Um, And the jury's still out as far as how all of this is Behaving and how it affects earthquakes, but that's what we're here for to also investigate. So we put all this into um, a mathematical model, and I won't go into all the math here. I will just photocopy some of my notes that I had made over the past few years. Um, all of this stuff goes into a computer, and it takes a lot of time, but we make sure that we have all of the bugs out of the computer code, and we run it for many, many hours, and lo and behold, we have some nice models that show up. So what we put into the model is where the fault is located, how deep we think the fault is. Um, We put in how much it moves or its slip. And then we tell it how thick this elastic plate is. This has a very important effect on the models. We tell it when the earthquake occurs at the time. And we also give it an idea of the viscosity. And that's just as how sort of um, strong or weak the material might be in this viscoelastic region. And we put that all in there. And out of the model, we get something like surface displacement, okay? And this tells us in three dimensions. So typically what you're going to see is I might have something represented as X, Y, and Z. And X and Y are simply the horizontal direction, and Z is the vertical direction. Okay, so the X displacement might be something like the east-west component. Um, The Y would be the north-south, and the vertical would be the up. Now, this is just a sample here to sort of um, introduce you, excuse me, um, to what I'm going to be showing you later. But if I were to tell the model... Okay, at this point here where the dashed line is, move this side forward by 10 meters, okay? So you'll obviously see so this side to be moving forward. This moves forward at 200 millimeters, and this side moves backwards by 200 millimeters. But there's also odd displacements in the east-west components, and also in the vert- vertical component, up and down, okay? So these different colors represent how much displacement occurred because of these parameters that we put into the model. Okay, enough of the boring stuff. Let's get on to the exciting stuff. So we apply this simple model to the San Andreas Fault System. Okay, we, go, we look at a map and we make sure that we have the fault in the right area, and we consult our local geologists and their <coughs> seismologists and ask them about the properties they know about the fault. And we tell the Pacific plate to move in one direction and the North American plate to move in a different direction. And we generate what we call a forward model. So that's putting the data in and actually producing a, a result. And so we use the slip rates, and we use depths of each of these faults, and we use earthquakes over the past 1,000 years, and I'll get to that in just a minute. And then we have to have something to compare this to, because it needs to be some sort of quantitative analysis. And so we compare it to horizontal and vertical measurements from GPS and then in doing so we're able to calculate deformation history over the past 1000 years and we're also able to calculate 1000 year earthquake history of stress. Now remember stress is important because perhaps stress is indicating where the earthquakes were occur, what areas are more likely. And we put all this together into animated movies. <clears throat> so, where do we get this data over the past 1000 years? Well, I've introduced you to it mostly Over the past 200 years, we consult the historical database. 1800 to 2004, they're based on historical accounts, meaning people have actually taken note of them, written them down, perhaps published them in a historical newspaper of sorts. And they're also global measurements. So this is an example of a seismogram from the 1906 earthquake that was actually measured in Holland. Okay, in the Netherlands. And so there have been actual measurements taking of all these earthquakes over the past 100 years from not just California because obviously we didn't have a lot of scientists out in California until the last maybe 50, 70 years. So all of this in total gives us 40 documented events. Okay, and all of these are shown here. Now, we've ignored a few events. Um, there was a magnitude, I believe it was a 7.1 in this area in Kern County in 1952. And there was a big earthquake along here in Owens Valley in 1872. Um, and we've only ignored these earthquakes. Actually, there's been quite a few in Los Angeles as well. And we've ignored these just because we wanted to first start out with pretty much a model confined to the San Andreas proper, Okay, with the exception of these two, just because they're more recent. And next, we need to go a little bit back if we want to date 1,000 years. And for that, we go to the prehistorical earthquake database. And these are earthquakes from 1,000 AD to 1,800. And they are basically discovered by what's called paleoseismologists digging a very deep trench that straddles the fault. And then looking for evidence, layers of rocks that are deformed and have different evidence for the the fact that an earthquake may have occurred. You'll see offsets. Sometimes there's also, they have to date these with um, radiocarbon dating techniques. Okay, So that's how they find the ages from these different carbon samples. And so these are also revealed by tree ring data, if you chop off a branch of a tree. You can see sometimes the um, water differences that went into the tree or disruption in the tree ring growth because of major shaking from an earthquake. And there's also sea level changes that we can go into. So in total, this database was found from 15 different sites marked by stars along the San Andreas Fault, and this gives us about 30 events. Okay, and so you think about it, and that's 1,000 AD to 1,800 AD. That's 800 events and only 30 Eight, eight excuse me, 800 years and only 30 events versus 200 years and 40 events. So there is quite a bit of uncertainty that goes into this, but this is the first start of doing this. And so this is the best we can do for now, but we're certainly hoping to improve this in the future. So we... Design a model, and this is a snapshot of our model, excuse me. And what you'll notice is California looks a little long, a little tall, and this is because this is the best way that our computer can calculate the model is by making it into this type of shape. Um, but down here in San Diego, LA region would be here, San Francisco would be up in here. Um, all these segments are named, and these red triangles are the locations of the GPS stations. Okay, so these stations are actively collecting measurements of how the crust is deforming. Now, into this model, we have make it approximately 900 by 1,700 kilometers. Okay? So it's 1,700 kilometers this way, 900 this way. Now, you may not be familiar with this, but this is, takes quite a bit of computer time. Okay? Sometimes people might spend hours and days and months just to calculate this large of a grid. And so this was one of the contributions we made to the scientific community, was to design a model that could easily compute this. And that was what all those mathematical sheets were showing you there. Um, The model is made up of 26 different fault segments. And we use the slip rates, the locking depths, and all those earthquakes that I just discussed. And in doing so, we design a sort of a timeline that represents all these different earthquakes dating back to these paleoseismic events. And the end results look something like this. And I'll just pause here for a moment and describe what we're sort of looking at. This is a figure from the 1857 event. This is a result of our model. And these rainbow colors are representative by 40 millimeters. One rainbow is 40 millimeters, okay? So from purple to red is 40 millimeters. And so if you think about it, this distance here experienced 40 millimeters. You go in another rainbow inwards and it it experienced 40 millimeters more and 40 millimeters more and more and more and more. So you can see there's hundreds of rainbows in here And so if you multiply each rainbow by 40, you're getting almost 10 meters of offset right at the fault. And that's why there's these jam-packed rainbows. likewise for 1906. So not as much deformation occurred out here, but lots and lots of deformation occurred right along the fault. And this is an example of the 2004 case. So to show you some results before we get into all those rainbows. um, So in comparing with the GPS data, we get three different components of the model that look something like this. This would be the north-south model, okay? So on the west side of the fault, in the oranges and the reds, we have approximately 20 millimeters of displacement moving to the north, and the blues and the purples represent about 20 millimeters moving to the south. And if you zoom in on any of these areas, you'll see a lot more detail. It's just for the most part, you have directly north-south motion. Now, because of this, we also have an east-west component And that's because this area of the fault bends. This is called the Big Bend, okay? Right just to the east of L.A. and Santa Barbara area. And this shows 6 millimeters a year moving to the, let's see, this is an east-west projection. So this would be moving to the east. Likewise, we have extensional features moving down here. And then in the vertical, we have areas that are moving up, okay, positive, positive, along the mountainous regions where the Big Bend is. And then you have extensional features moving out to the, that are subsiding, Okay, so these are the primary results of our model. Now, I said we compare these to GPS. And this is just a very simple way of looking at it. All these little profiles that are shown here are put down into this space here. And so just taking a piece of the model, comparing it with these little circles here. So the solid line is our model. And the circles are places where we have GPS, GPS stations excuse me, located along the fault, and they're matched to our model. And this is just to show you how well our model works and actually where we need to make it better. So in Northern California, we have a good match. These are all corresponding to these profiles here. Now you can see there's something going on here that we're not catching in our model. And I can tell you right now, we know what that is. Um, it's the fact that we're ignoring these faults out here. And so this is an improvement we have to make. And we're actually currently doing this right now. Um, Southern California, we do a pretty good job as well. But overall, I mean, this is a model. So our goal is to fit this perfectly. But in real life, you're never going to quite get perfection. So we're actually doing pretty good here. Now I'm going to show you an animation. This is now showing the three components. You're going to see the x velocity. And x is the east-west velocity. You're going to see the north-south velocity. And then you're going to see the vertical displacement. I'm going to show this movie is going to run from 1800 to the year 2005. And you can see the numbers down here are going to show you the dates as well. Um, So I'm just going to get it started. And it's probably going to skip at first. So you may not see the first 10 years. Oh, you did. Okay. So it starts off at 1812. There's an earthquake there. Okay. Now keep in mind what the rainbows uh, represent. We're going to see an event here in 1838 once it approaches. Again, it's kind of void because we don't know about the earthquake history leading up to these bigger earthquakes. There was the 1838 one. Now keep your eye in this region here and get ready for the 1857 earthquake that eruptured Southern California. And you'll see the effects. And these long-term effects dating tens of years later is this viscoelastic component. That's why we're using this more complicated model. Because you can see the earth is still deforming 10 10 to 20 years later. Okay, so we're approaching the 1900s. We should see some earthquakes up in both northern and southern California. In 1906, keep your eye on this one here. This will be the San Francisco earthquake. There it is. And again, many years later, we're still seeing it deform. And this vertical one is kind of a little bit boring in that you don't see any drastic changes as it's moving slowly like this. But I'll speed this movie up in a minute, and you can actually see how dramatic these are. Okay, so in 1940, an imperial event. We're approaching the 50s, and I believe there's going to be the Palm Springs earthquake in 48. Uh, The 1960s, there were quite a few earthquakes in here, and there's also one um, in Parkfield. There it was, 1966. And we're almost to 84, which will be one in here in the Calaveras region. And then we get to the 90s, 89, Loma Prieta, the Landers earthquake. We'll see the Hector Mine earthquake occur here, and then we'll see the Parkfield earthquake. Okay, now I'm going to speed this up, and I'd like you to watch this vertical component here, how the Earth goes up and down. Okay, so this is going to move rather quickly here. As soon as there's a big earthquake, which is now, you see this vertical component completely subside and move around, and then you have areas that are starting to go up, and this area is again starting to repeat and go down. And we're at 1990. We see some changes here, and I'll let it run one more time. Okay, so this is going down, down, down. The side's going up, and then all of a sudden it changes after the 1857 event and disappears, but then gets reloaded again up in here. And so there are so many things that we can actually learn from this. It's just actually taking the time to explore each one of these little events that's the key to all of this. Okay, now I'm going to show you one more real uh, kind of bizarre model. This model is for a 70 kilometer thick elastic region. Okay, I'm going to show you one for a 30-kilometer-thick region. It's going to play fast, but you'll no- notice how just bizarre this region looks here. We don't believe this model, but it's pretty interesting to watch. It goes down, it moves around, it just looks like one of those blobs of um, a lava lamp or something. So we have, and it actually produces completely opposite results in some cases for some different time periods than the thicker plate model did. And so we can pretty much rule this thin plate out as the right answer just because it doesn't match our GPS estimates and it shows a lot different results than the thicker plate model. But the study's still going. We're still trying to um, provide even more evidence for this. Okay, so I'm going to move on to the stress models because this is really the most important and this is our main goal here. We want to look at the displacement to match it with the GPS but then from there we want to build models of stress. This model here is showing the 2004 model. I haven't yet produced the 2005 model, but that'll be next. Um, And this is showing uh, what we think the stress field looked like in 1811 and in 1856, and I'll get to that in a minute. So in 2004, these colors are reds are the high stress areas, and the purples are the fairly low stress areas. And so what you don't want is red. Okay, but obviously there's quite a bit of red going up and down here notice that there's nothing no reds in here And this is because this area is just creeping along at a steady pace with no, not storing a bunch of energy But there's this big area here which last ruptured in 1857, and there's this region here which ruptured last in 1690 That's a long time ago, and we suspect that this area ruptures every 200 to 300 years. So this area is pretty much overdue as well. There have been a few earthquakes right in the Palm Springs area that have reduced the forces and the stresses that are building up. But all along the Salton Sea, if any of you have, well, you wouldn't have a summer home there, but if you have a winter home there, you may want to change your plans. Um, And then the Bay Area also has some high areas, but I would say this area is... from our models at least, indicate that this area is one of the more hazardous regions. So, 1811, how does this match up with what we know from history? 1811, this is just prior to a major earthquake, a 7.6 earthquake that occurred in 1812. And you can see that this area here did have quite a bit of red just before this earthquake occurred. And then likewise, the 1857 earthquake, which had an epicenter right here, right in the middle of this high-stress, high-building stress area, had it ruptured this entire length here. Now, why it ruptured down here is still a little bit questionable. We don't know why exactly. But it did have an epicenter here, and it propagated all the way down. Okay, So these models do confirm what we already know about what happened in the past, and perhaps they're indicative of what may happen in the future. So I'm going to show you a model, a movie of this, and it's going to go pretty quickly. Um, Again, the timeline is up here. It's going to show the last 200 years, and you'll just see these red and blues turning on and off as it go. So that was from the 1812 event. Um, We're in 1830s. It pauses just before an earthquake. 1857 took this entire region out. And then watch this area load up again over the past 150 years. It just keeps accumulating accumulating and accumulating and accumulating and accumulating. And notice this area is already starting to be red. In 1940, you'll see this region pop off from the imperial earthquake. And then, again, this is just growing and growing and growing, as are these little faults out here, which we've also included in the model. So this is your tour of the stress field of the San Andreas. Um, again, we have not quite included all of the faults in the region, but primarily we end up at 2004 where we see all of this stress being accumulated here. And I'm going to fast-forward that. Last step here is just to recapture what we saw here in 1900, 1920, 1940, 60, 80, and year 2004. And so you see this just accumulating, and you also see how these different earthquakes cause the stress to turn on and off. So some future applications just to wind this up. There's a big project called the Earthscope Project, and it's funded by the National Science Foundation. There are thousands of scientists working on this, and this is going to be our next step. They're actually putting in many, many GPS receivers all along the entire U.S. This is where they are today, and all these blue stations show the GPS stations. And so all this data we put into our model in the many years to come and help us constrain these models better. Um, We also want to look into tide gauges. Tide gauges record sea level, but they also record the displacement of the Earth. And most of this is from the the sea level changes are obviously ocean-related and climate-related events. But if you have a big earthquake, you can have lots of vertical displacement. And this just shows you um, both San Diego, which is in sorry, black, and San Francisco, which is in red, showing the up and down motions of sea level change. Um, And so we're hoping to take data from all of these stations recorded along the coastline and compare that to the vertical results that we see in our model. Um, So that'll be something that we're looking forward to. And then lastly is to apply this model to other fault systems. There are other fault systems out there other than the San Andreas, and of equally important. If you turn California aside, you compare the San Andreas fault system to the fault that runs through Turkey. This is called the North Anatolian fault. You can see they're very similar in length, and they have a very similar slip rate. Each is about 40 millimeters a year. And Tur- this Anatolian fault has been showing um, progression of earthquakes over the past 20 to 40 years that are continually moving to the west. Okay of course this fault runs through the nice countryside little villages in Turkey but it also ends up right down here at the base of Istanbul okay? and there's a lot of seismic hazard here and there's millions of people here whose lives could be affected by the next major rupture here so we, it would be really important to be applying our model to this so I'll conclude you here with a nice little picture that I found that I really appreciate a lot I should hang this one over my bed um, I hope you've enjoyed the talk, please let me know if you have any questions and thank you for your time He said that he understands how the earth moves up and down and laterally, meaning the north south direction, if you apply forces along the fault, how it's oriented. But how does the east west component play in? And all of this is because of geometry and dynamics and forces. And when you apply forces along an area that's bending, but you apply those forces exactly at the areas of the faults perpendicular to the fault, you're going to get deformation in the east and the west. You probably noticed that. Though when the fault was aligned completely north-south, there wasn't a lot of east-west motion, movement. But if you have any area where the fault is, is bending to the east or to the west, you end up having the same forces applied on those boundaries. And so that gives you a broad lateral, um, actually east-west motion.
0: Okay, and that, that results in a deformation of the
1: fault line. Uh, yeah, on the fault plane, that's right. okay um, he said he noticed that um, from regarding the sea level data i showed just at the end um... that san diego data and the san francisco actually data diverged in the last twenty to thirty years um, this is tectonically related as far as our models go because San Francisco has had a different vertical effect from the 1906 earthquake and San Diego has had a different effect from the 1857 earthquake, but there are also quite a bit of contribution of just um, El Nino effects, um, local climate effects, and it actually also depends on where the station is placed, as in if it's on a bay, if it's in a bay or if it's just out in open ocean. So um, this is a work in progress and they do diverge and we can't, I'm not a climatologist or an Oceanographer. So the best I can say is there is a tectonic component, but it's not the biggest one. Our job is to remove everything but the tectonic component and use that. Okay, he asked, how strongly would we rock and roll if uh, one of those big earthquakes were to occur? Um, we're about 200 kilometers away from um, the Salton Sea region where the, where the stress is building. Uh, and they're suspecting, there are quite a few colleagues of mine that have um, estimated about a 7.8 earthquake that that's capable of rupturing. Um, I did feel the magnitude 7.2 earthquake, the Hector Mine earthquake in 99, um, and my bed moved around a little bit, and that was a 7.2 earthquake. So if you imagine a 7.8 earthquake, um, that's six times greater. We'd be shaken quite a bit. I mean, we're not in as much danger as those that are sitting right on top of the fault. The further away you get, the better you are. And we're also in an area that has um, fairly non-loose soils, okay? L.A. Basin has quite a bit of loose soils, and that makes it a very dangerous area. Most of San Diego is built on some stronger rocks, and so We're not as bad off as we could be, let's just put it that way.